Welcome to a special episode of The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The death of a John Doe in Del Mar, New York in the spring of 1981 was one of the capital region's oldest cold cases. It was a 41-year-old mystery that was all but forgotten. This year, it became the region's first ever unidentified person's case solved using genetic genealogy. Times Union reporter Pete DeMola and I spent the last few months taking a deep dive into it. Neither of us had ever heard of it before January of this year. It began before either of us were born. Yet, we discovered it's a fascinating story, full of twists and turns, of mysteries and technology, of a lost soul. It reads like a riveting novel or a compelling episode of NCIS. According to the New York State Police Public Online Database, there are 20 current cases of deceased unidentified individuals across the state. The John Doe in this case is no longer among them. And that could lead to breaks in more unidentified persons' cases in New York State. doesn't love a good cold case podcast episode. Without further ado, it's time to sit back and listen. It's a sunny but brisk Sunday morning in early March as Lynn Dente looks out over her farmland in Delmar, New York. It's been in her family for generations. If you're describing different parts of the farm, you know, go do uh, this, go do that. And you'd say, you know, they're out doing hay by Dead Man's Cove, so. Wow. Dente turns to face the eastern side of the farm on Vadney Road. About a mile from the stables in that same direction, through a heavily wooded area, is Dead Man's Cove. It's actually just the property line she shares with the Elm Avenue Town Park. But what happened there 41 years ago earned it the colorful moniker. It was talked about, you know, family functions and things like that, but so much time had gone by and nothing had come of it that we kind of didn't talk about it too much. In early 1981, a tree fell on part of the fence that separates the farm from the park. Lynn's grandfather headed out to mend it on April 3rd, 1981. He was out there and saw two feet sticking in the air. Really? (laughs) Yeah. There, by the edge of the property, was a body. I don't remember the whole thing. I do remember the police coming and you know, so on, and them questioning my grandfather, and they felt that he had probably walked across from the town park, and uh, I don't know, they didn't know too much at that time. The corpse was badly decomposed. It was missing all vital organs. There wasn't enough flesh left to take fingerprints police could not find any identification. 
They did find copies of the January 1st, 1981 spotlight and the Ravina News Herald newspapers with the body. Also, a shredded bus ticket and a small spiral notebook that had a few hand-scrawled phone numbers in it. Numbers for local churches and stores, the Bethlehem Recreation Department, CDTA, organizations that provided food and shelter for folks in need. Forensic investigation determined the body had likely been there for about three months. From the evidence found at the scene, it seemed almost a foregone conclusion that this man probably led something of a transient lifestyle. No one could identify him. No one was looking for him. In the days and weeks that followed, the case quickly went cold. Then, nearly 41 years went by. It was through this lead that we were able to locate two surviving relatives. January 2022, the Bethlehem Police Department makes an announcement. They've identified John Doe. We can prove, based on all testimony and physical evidence today, that the confirmed two DNA samples that the body found on April 3rd, 1981, buried in Grayson Cemetery several days later, is no longer John Doe, but is in fact Franklin Feldman. His name was Franklin D. Feldman. He was 41 years old when he died. Case closed. But of course, that's not the whole story. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's resume our story. Feldman had never been reported missing. Pete DeMola was the Times Union reporter on call the day Bethlehem PD announced it had solved the 41-year-old cold case of the Delmar John Doe. This first came on my radar on a Wednesday. I worked the night shift, which means anything after a certain time kind of gets kicked over to me. It wasn't a chore, though. I have always been into forensics, personally, and crime, which I suppose is one of the reasons why I'm a crime reporter. What intrigued him, he says, was the nature of the case. So for somebody, you know, to completely disappear off the face of the planet and be a complete mystery for 41 years is astounding to me. That someone could disappear and no one would know or care. Pete went to the press conference the next day. It was packed with reporters, eager for the big reveal. Local news outlets had been covering this case for years, trying to puzzle out the identity of this John Doe. Lynn Dente was also there with some of her family. 
I honestly, from the information that they had, I didn't think that there would be a way to identify him. So I was quite surprised. I got a, um, Adam Hornick actually was nice enough to put a call in to me and let me know that they had figured it all out. I'd like to thank everybody for coming today um, and echo the importance of this, uh, not just for the community, but for the families and all those involved in this incident 41 years ago today. Bethlehem Police Commander Adam Hornick led the investigation. Hornick is a 20-year veteran of the department. He's in his mid-40s. He likes to keep it formal, donning a suit and tie. And he's fiercely proud of his hometown. I'm one of those people that never left. <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up in the community, went to school here, went to community college, went to college, started working for the police department as a dispatcher when I was 20 years old. Hornick quickly made his way up the ranks. In 2013, he was promoted to detective sergeant. Not long after, the decades-old John Doe case landed on his desk. Uh, an administrative sergeant handed me two sheets of paper uh, and literally said, is this case still active? The case intrigued Hornick. Much in the same way that it had intrigued Pete DiMola and Lynn Dente, who was this man? What happened to him? Why had no one come looking for him? Hornick became determined to piece together the story, to find closure to a case that has haunted his hometown for decades. It wasn't going to be easy. There wasn't much to go on. There had been a flood at the Bethlehem Town Hall in the early 1990s. Records of the John Doe investigation had been destroyed, save for the aforementioned two sheets of paper. Nobody 100% remembers what was in the file. We do know, based on what we were able to reconstruct and get copies of some of the initial documents from some other agencies in the county and in the state, uh, they did have some of the initial reports or one or two pages of the initial reports. We do know that there were some photos uh, of the decedent that were lost, photos of the clothing, uh, as well as all the officers and detectives' notes that had been investigating the case uh, and all the leads they had followed up on had been lost. It was painfully slow going. Four years went by. Then, a break. Hornick obtained a document from the Albany County Coroner's Office. It said John Doe's jawbones, specifically a mandible and a maxilla, had been sent to a Saratoga County dentist's office in 1981 for forensic analysis. Miraculously, the office was still in practice. Hornick immediately called. Uh, and lo and behold, they had maintained the bones uh, in their basement the entire time. That's 36 years in a basement at this point. Hornick picked up the bones and sent them to the New York State Police for analysis. If they could lift some DNA from those bones, something that wasn't done back in 1981, maybe they could find some answers. Around the same time Hornick discovered the jawbone, another very famous 40-plus-year-old cold case got a big break through DNA. The FBI identified the Golden State Killer using genetic genealogy. That's a combo of DNA profiling and tracing heritage. Think sites like MyHeritage, Ancestry.com, and 23andMe. Former California police officer Joseph D'Angelo was arrested in 2018 after DNA samples pulled from the scenes of his crimes were matched to relatives through an Ancestry testing website. 
D'Angelo pled guilty to 13 murders and 13 rape-related charges. He's now serving multiple life sentences. So if the FBI could find a killer, and someone like me could find a long-lost relative, true story, could something like that help identify the Bethlehem John Doe? It wasn't that simple, as Pete DeMola discovered, especially in New York State. State regulations at the time didn't allow police to compare an unidentified body's genetic material to uh, samples from potential relatives stored in state and federal DNA databases. In other words, Hornick's investigation hit another major roadblock, maybe even an impenetrable one. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The Bethlehem John Doe's case looked pretty hopeless by 2020. Commander Adam Hornick and the New York State Police Lab had been able to lift DNA from the jawbones found in a Saratoga County dentist's basement. But there wasn't a lot of it. They could tell John Doe was a male and that he was around 40 years old. But they couldn't really do anything else with it. State law prohibited the investigation of familial DNA matching for unidentified persons. Dr. Ray Wickenheiser heads up the New York State Police Crime Laboratory system in Albany. He explained to Pete DeMola what going further with genetic testing would entail. You develop a different kind of profile than what we use in the crime lab. It's known as a, a SNP profile or SNP or single nucleotide polymorphism. And so that more extensive profile is the kind of profile that genealogy databases, and you have a lot of amateur genealogists, that they go to um, you know, various websites, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, or what have you, spit in a tube, you get your profile, and then you get matched to relatives. In other words, an exciting prospect for a seemingly otherwise unsolvable case. Uh, the kinds of cases that uh, we reserve these techniques because you can appreciate they're pretty labor intensive. There are a lot of additional uh, scientific work and genealogical work uh, on top of just getting the additional DNA profile. So uh, they're very exciting cases to solve because frankly, we've tried every which way to do it. In 2019, that was a tantalizing but impossible solution. Hornick was desperate for an exception. Uh, and that's when we decided to use that um, as well as everything we had been able to put back together in, in the previous six years of this case to do a big media push. Um, and honestly, the media did a, a great job for us in publicizing it both uh, on air and in print. And uh, it really took, got everybody back involved. We got people in the community talking about the case again. It took another two years, but in 2021, Hornick got his wish. The uh, familial search ultimately was expanded uh, only in April of last year to include unidentified human remains, which 
I kind of unlocked all, all the, the recipe and the puzzle pieces for Commander Hornick to move forward. So after that expansion, then it was kind of all, all speed ahead. The state lab couldn't lift enough DNA from the John Doe jawbones to create a full genetic profile required for genetic genealogy. So Hornick hooked up with the FBI's Investigative Genetic Genealogy Unit. Together, they went to Othram, Inc. My name is uh, David Middleman, and I'm the CEO and uh, founder of Othram. And uh, our company is uh, uh, essentially a, a forensic testing laboratory that helps law enforcement identify people from crime scenes. Othram is based in Texas. Google the name and dozens of news articles pop up. In each, Othram is cited as helping to solve decades-old cases of unidentified individuals across the country. A 41-year-old John Doe case in Washington? Solved. A 60-year-old Little Miss Nobody, as she was called in Arizona? Solved. A 25-year-old homicide case in Las Vegas? The list goes on. We do a testing that involves not 20 markers, but rather involves hundreds of thousands of markers. So we'll capture tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers, and we'll take that information and, and build a much bigger profile than you would get um, from just 20 markers. And it allows us to learn a lot of things. We can learn about the biogeographical origins of a person. Uh, we can learn about long range relationships and associations um, to possible family members. Uh, we can do genealogical search um, or enable others to do genealogical search to see if even you know very distant relatives could be used in conjunction with family trees to kind of bring back uh, the steps of, 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 of who this person might be. To make a long story short, the advanced genetic profile Othram was able to create for the Bethlehem John Doe generated a very valuable lead on genetic relatives in Massachusetts. The FBI followed up on those leads on behalf of the Bethlehem PD. They went out and interviewed um, a lady who's in her late 80s, uh, and immediately upon interviewing her, that can be a strange thing. You know, the police, the government knocking at your door, hey, look, we're doing genealogy, we're doing DNA, and somehow showing you're related to someone that's missing or deceased. Um, so explaining that to people is even a complex factor. And when the FBI did that, the lady right away said, um, my nephew has been missing for probably 50 years. Um, we haven't seen him in easily decades. Uh, and the FBI asked what was his name, and that was the first time we heard Franklin Feldman's name. So, who was Franklin D. Feldman? Details about his life are scant. Of his two surviving relatives confirmed by investigators, both were of advanced age, and only one had ever actually met him. There are no known photographs of him. What is known? He was a 41-year-old white male, born in Lynn, Massachusetts. His father died when he was very young. His mother died in a retirement community in 2004. Feldman drifted in and out of society for about 20 years before he died. 
His aunt told investigators that it was not unusual for him to disappear for long periods of time, starting in the 1960s, and that was when he was in his early 20s. She said the family suspected that he suffered with mental health issues. He was homeless at times, and he eventually made his way to New York. Investigators were able to piece together some details of his final days. It's likely he'd been homeless at the time, possibly seeking shelter and resources from organizations in Del Mar and Bethlehem. The, the guess is, is that Mr. Feldman transversed over from the town park, which is located you know, near the property, which is how he gained access, because gaining access from the farm would have been extremely difficult unless you were pretty skilled in wilderness hiking. Investigators say there was no evidence of foul play involved in his death, but they could not determine the cause. Whether he was sick, froze in the cold, or any other circumstance imaginable, no one will likely ever know. For now, those invested in the story may just have to settle for knowing his name. Hornick says he's found a way to be at peace with that. I came here, stood in front of the grave, and said, Franklin, it's, we know it's you. Pete and I met Hornick at Graceland Cemetery in Del Mar, New York, on a bright, crisp February morning. We followed his cruiser down the winding path in our cars to the very back of the sprawling plot. When we parked, Hornick gestured toward a pastoral area by trees at the very edge of the property. From the other side of the trees, you could hear the distant flow of the nearby creek. So, this is the last row, this is the last... Uh markings of graves and there's the, the um, stone marker signifying the end of the cemetery and the last row and back there you have the Norman Skill Creek. Um, so this is it. Franklin Feldman's gravesite has no stone, no obvious marker of any kind. The only indication to the casual observer is a slight dip in the ground level. His remains were buried there in the spring of 1981. I drove here one day um, after work. Um, and just went over to the grave and stood there and said his name out loud. Um, and then that's when it kind of hit me. Commander Adam Hornick is in the process of retiring from the force. The case of Franklin D. Feldman's identity practically absorbed his life for the last years of his career. It, it did. It definitely did. I mean, my wife will tell you, I was sitting on the couch at home, like, at night, just playing on the iPad, researching things and looking at colder cases and you know, looking at other states and trying to find other mechanisms and techniques and everything. You can definitely see that Commander Hornick is a, a man of great integrity and somebody who really kind of was personally and emotionally invested in this case. And you could tell that he, it meant a lot for him to be able to, uh, to not only solve this case as a career making moment, career defining moment, but also open up the floodgates for this to be used elsewhere in New York State. Hornick says he hopes the solving of this case, the first of its kind in the capital region to use familial DNA and genetic genealogy, will inspire more answers in other cases of unidentified persons. 
uh, and the changes we were able to make throughout this case has really been um, something that I think will be instrumental for a lot of other families, law enforcement agencies, and communities uh, in being able to solve cases through these techniques as we go on. Lynn Dente, still looking out toward Dead Man's Cove, says she's happy to see a resolution in this case, to see the man identified after all these years. I, I thought it was pretty impressive that that could be done after all this time. Uh -huh. You know, kind of gives you hope for other people that don't have identities, you know. Yeah. For Pete DeMola's part, covering the story has inspired him as well. The region has a number of notable cold cases that still need answers. Couldn't help but thinking about uh, several cases. Uh, one of them is um, the Craig Freer case. He uh, disappeared in 2004 from Scotia. Uh, he basically left his car and walked in the woods behind a friend's apartment and never was spotted again. Yeah, that's one that I think really kind of captures the, um, the interests of people in the capital region whenever we talk about uh, cold cases. And the other one uh, is a young kid named Colin Gillis uh, up in the Adirondacks in Tupper Lake. He disappeared in 2012 while, while walking uh, home from a party in a really rural, remote area. It, it's very unlikely that they'll be solved because no bodies were found. For more info on some of those prominent Capital Region cold cases, check out our Cold Cases of the Capital Region video series over at timesunion.com. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. This week's episode was produced by Pete DeMola and myself, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.